I'm not that old. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of things. But what I can say with being pretty resolute about is that in my lifetime, in the 38 years that I've been alive, I don't know that I've ever noticed a time where people wanted to make more of a difference. More people wanted to make a difference. They wanted to be involved with something that truly mattered. They wanted to know that when they leave, that they left something behind that was substantial. Uh, people are willing to volunteer their time and to give uh, to, to, to very different, diverse um, causes. And this morning I want us to see, as we consider this idea of being a difference maker, what does it really mean to make a difference? How can we know how to invest our lives, our, our time, our treasures, our talent, how can we know what is going to be the best bang for our buck in regards to truly making a difference? So I want to look, in Psalm 112, it highlights a man. The man is nameless, um, but we get this idea of this man who truly made a difference. He impacted a lot of people on a lot of different time frames. His impact literally stood for all eternity. Now again, we don't know who this particular person is, but we just know that the author is writing about who, about a man who made a difference. And, and we're only going to be here for a couple weeks, so we're breaking it up not quite in half. But I want you to follow with me as we read in, in the very first verse all the way down to uh, verse 4. It says, Praise the Lord, or some of your translations will say hallelujah. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. Stop there. Did you see this picture starting to be painted of this man? Obviously, when this was penned under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author, the writer, I guess, the author is the Holy Spirit, but the writer was so full of joy, probably as he was contemplating and considering this life of this blessed man, he starts out with a word of praise. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's the first word to be penned across the front of this psalm. He starts it with praise. And then from that initial shout, of praise to God, he then begins to move in directly into what caused him to utter that praise. He, he starts describing for us what the source of that praise was all about. Obviously, he's glorifying God, but he's giving thought to this man. Now, think about the description of the man in the very first verse. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. I think if we were to just pause for a minute, I would say that we probably all would agree that we want to be blessed. We want to live a blessed life. We want to live a life that we know has been, has been blessed and has, the, has all of the markings of God's favor on it. Every one of us wants that. We may not know how to get it, how to gain it, but the Bible here gives us some kind of insight into that. He says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now, if we're taking notes this morning, the first of the three things is this. I want you to notice the man and his God, okay? The difference maker 
and his God. Because it's only right, isn't it, that if we're talking about a blessed man, that the first thing that is spoken of is his relationship to God. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Take that little chunk for just a moment. Because, guys, this is a tremendous story. I mean, this is an awesome character study of a blessed man. And the very first chapter, the very introduction we have to this guy is how does he relate to God? We know how God relates to him. The rest of the psalm tells us that. But how does this man relate to God? It says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He, you want a definition of fearing the Lord? He takes God seriously. Now think about this for a moment. Taking God seriously. For him, <coughs> he has a very good grasp of who God is. He has had some type of experience or an encounter with God. In fact, if you look and you're digging deeper through the week questions on your bulletin, you'll find that I'm talking about one of the guys in the Bible who really took God seriously. He had a tremendous encounter with God. He was Isaiah. In chapter 6, he went into the temple and he saw, this, this, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He heard the words and cherubim flying around. He saw all these amazing things and the temple began to shake. And do you remember that at that moment, he began to confess his sins. He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. And God hadn't said anything about lips. God hadn't said anything about Isaiah. I want you to confess to me the sin that's on your heart. Nowhere in there do we have it. We have an encounter with God being God and a man beholding that. I believe we're not ever going to be able to truly have a relationship that fears God if we're not willing to take Him seriously. If we're not willing to go to the Word and see what the Word says about God and by faith believe that Word. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I believe that God is who He is. I believe He's greater than I can even imagine. He is huge, guys. And this man, the very first description of his relationship to God, as we understand how he relates to God, it starts out by saying he is a man who fears God. He takes God seriously. He has had an experience. He has had an encounter that has left him changed. We may have uh, many different encounters, but the greatest of encounter that we can have with God is through his word. His true, inspired, and errant word that reveals God to us. And as the Holy Spirit of God applies that word, helps us come to that place of belief to realize He is awesome. He is amazing. He is incredible. He is holy. He is just. When I come to understand the character and the awesomeness of God, it ought to bring about a change in me. The second description of this man and how he relates to God. It's not just that, that he fears the Lord, but notice, he delights greatly in his commandments. Delights greatly in his commands. This is really a deep section. It doesn't say he fears the Lord and does what God commands. It adds a little more. 
Because we would obviously think that a man who fears the Lord would do what God says. But even more than that, it says he delights greatly. It brings him joy to do what God has said. Now think about how truly beautiful those two descriptions are. He is a man who has a reverential love for God. He reverences him. He knows if God says it, he's going to do it. He knows that God is holy and to be, and to be, uh, to be praised and to be worshipped. But he's not a man who has some empty ritual in his life where he's saying, well, I've got to do this because God said so. It's not this empty, hollow ritualism in his life. What it is is a loving relationship. In John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. What Jesus was saying is our obedience ought to be tied into a loving relationship with Christ. Don't we do that or shouldn't we do that as well, husbands? Shouldn't, shouldn't our relationship to our wife not be some religious thing, some, something that is void and hollow of love? But shouldn't love be the primary motivation for our actions in relationship to our wife and wife? Shouldn't it be the same thing with our husbands? Shouldn't everything we do flow from this fountain of love that is bursting forth out of us and affecting others in every area of life? Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who delights greatly in his command. It's a joy. Guys, do you remember? I referenced Isaiah chapter 6 on the prophet Isaiah's call to be a prophet. You remember there was this encounter in that, that moment that Isaiah describes where God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It was this conversation between the Trinity. And God has allowed us to, to, to allowed the world to, to have a record of this encounter of God speaking among the Trinity. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Do you remember what Isaiah's response was? Famous. Here am I, Lord, send me. You see, he reverenced God and willingly offered himself to the service of God without knowing what to say, where to go, or how long to do it. He didn't have all the questions answered. It didn't matter. He reverenced God and he willingly submitted himself to the cause of God. All he knew was that he was going for God on his behalf. And doing what God told him to do. Some of you may be familiar with the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts. You remember when he was converted in Acts chapter 9. As he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. Throwing them in jail. Had already seen extre overseen extreme persecution of the believers of the day. And do you remember he was on his way to Damascus to round up more Christians. And as he was on his way. The vision or the Lord appeared to him on the road. And it was this glorious sight. And you remember what happened to Paul? He falls off of his horse and he asks two questions. The Lord reveals to Paul who he is. I'm the Lord whom you persecute. And do you remember the two questions that Paul asked? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Here we have this reverence followed. By a willing submission 
to a great big God. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? Two great questions that every one of us as believers should also ask God. God, I want to know you better. I want to have this firm grasp of who you are. God, I don't want to just know who you are. I want to be a part of what you're doing. To offer ourselves willingly in submission. I want you to think about this for a moment. Because, oh, let, me, let me read verse 2. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. First, it begins to speak about his relationship to God. Then it speaks of his relationship to his descendants. Think about this with me for a moment. His descendants have been impacted by his life. His children and the generation that comes after. I believe verse 2 is written because of verse 1. Guys, I encounter a lot of people. A lot of people. I encounter a lot of people that are on a spiritual journey or would want to be on a spiritual journey with Jesus. And I encounter a lot of people that say, when I talk to them about, uh, about their salvation, their life may be anything but reflection, a reflection of Jesus. But they'll say, yeah, I remember I was 8 or 12 or 15 and I was at camp and, and I went forward and I, I prayed the prayer. But ever since that moment, their life has not really demonstrated a change. I think it's incredibly hard for us to have a true, legitimate, saving encounter with Jesus Christ and not have some marks of that salvation lived out through our life. I'm not saying we work in order to be saved. I say we work because we are saved and we know who God is. But you know the crazy thing? When I look at verse 1, because I walk away from those, those uh, questions sometimes. I walk away from that encounter with him, and I wonder, was there a legitimate, genuine salvation? Was there a true conversion? Was this person truly born again? Because if there really is no fruit, I'm not saying you're not saved. From the time I was 12 to the time I was 18, there was very little fruit hanging on the Jamie Tickle God tree, okay? But, if we say that we have had an encounter but we don't take God seriously and there's not some kind of a joy in our heart because of the new birth that we've experienced that delights in honoring God through our obedience if those two things aren't present I'm not saying you're not saved but I would, I would say I would want to go back and make sure that I wasn't just praying a prayer. I wasn't just saying something as coached by a counselor at the altar. I'd want to say, God, I would want to ask the tough questions down here before I ever get up there. And I would want to say, God, am I really saved? Because, guys, this may not be the case all the time. God knows the heart. But when I encounter a person that says, yes, I was saved, I went down forward, I, I prayed a prayer, I, someone, someone led me to the Lord, if they use that type of terminology, and then I see in their life an ongoing reverence for God and a true, genuine joy in doing what is right, if it was me, just off of my human eyes, looking at what 
the, the evidence they've given me, I would take a stamp and I would stamp it right down on the table and I would say genuine. That looks authentic to me. To have a genuine reverence of God and a joy, a delight in doing what he says. I'm not saying things, that I'm not using words that don't match up with my life. Don't get me wrong, we still all sin. We all fall short. We struggle. But this guy at his core was able to demonstrate a reverence towards God and a joy in doing what he says. I believe verse number two is there because of verse number one. There is no doubt that verse one is describing a man who had an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. You know what, guys? Your kids and my kids are not dumb. And you know what? They're getting smarter. They're able to tell, have a pretty good indicator of what is authentic and what is not. And I know I've talked with guys who grew up in a Christian home, but they were not, they were not living the blessed life. They may have made a relationship, they may have made a decision for Christ, they may not have, but the people I had met were literally on the bottom rung of the ladder, and they could look back and tell you about the influence that their mom or dad had. They could tell you if they deemed it to be authentic and genuine, or they could tell you if it didn't seem to be genuine. I can't tell you the stories that I have heard of of witnesses of parents because of an inauthentic relationship or an inconsistent Christian life and the effect, the disastrous effect it had on those kids. But I can also tell you that I've had conversations with people at the very bottom rung of the ladder who were not living for God, who were not honoring the name that was given to them. And I can tell you that their hearts broke. Some of them truly had broken hearts because they knew that their mom or their dad's relationship with God was authentic and they feel as though they'd broke their mom and dad heart and God's heart as well. Talk to Tim Sumners. I'm sure Brother Tim could tell you stories of the effects of authentic and inauthentic relationships of parents to their children. The second thing (coughs) is his descendants. His life had a direct impact on his kids. You are never more real than you are when you are at home. As a man, when you are in your castle, that's about who you are. We can put on masks and faces in other places. I love what Psalm 101 says, I will walk within my house with a pure heart. Man, that is the proving ground for our faith. How we treat our wives, how we treat our children, how we treat other people. Do our kids get to see that authentic relationship coming through? Because I promise you, if you and I want to make a difference in our families, if you and I want to make a difference in our children, if you and I want to make a difference in the descendants and the lineage that will come from us, the greatest thing that we can offer to them, I believe, is having is, is modeling an authentic, genuine relationship with Christ. These kids, in verse 2, these kids are the description of what every one of us as parents want. Right here, you ask me what I want my kids to be? It's verse 2. Let me sum it up for you. I want my kids to grow up and to be mighty and moral. I want them, I don't care if they're 6'6", I don't care if they're 4'6". 
I don't care if they can bench press 300 pounds or barely get the bar off their chest. That's not the mighty that I'm talking about. I want my kids to be valiant. I want my kids to be modern day knights. I want my kids to be leaders in their school. I want my kids to be willing to, be, to make a stand on something and doesn't care who else is around. I want them to be influenced by God and God alone. I want people to be able to look at my kids, and maybe it's selfish, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe there's a part of me that wants, my, wants people to see my kids and to be a reflection on me, and if that's the case, I confess, I apologize. But I believe in my heart even more than that. I want my kids to be known as strong spiritually. I want them to have a moral compass so that down the road, they're not crying over a broken life and I'm not crying over a broken life. I want to know that they have what it takes to make godly decisions, to be strong and mighty, valiant, courageous, for the things that are right and for the cause of Christ. How, do I, how can I get there? By them seeing authenticity in me. In me. Modeling it. That's how that happens. We, obviously, may not always see the impact that we've had on our children in this life. We may, in fact, I just officiated a, a funeral for a man that was 56 years old, died suddenly. Got up out of bed, fell back into bed, never to, never to get up again. It was a friend of mine. It was a shock to his family, shock to his friends. The funeral service was packed that Friday. I mean, it was packed. There were people in overflow section because this man had such an impact on so many people in the community. You know, the crazy thing about it was as I was listening to his daughters, wonderful daughters, great daughters, as each one of them had shared with me the impact that their father had made, I know that in large part, they hadn't necessarily told him all of those things while he was alive. He didn't get to know exactly the influence that he made on his children while he was alive. And that's probably true for us. Maybe some of you have tried to very, your very best to live authentic lives and have an authentic and model that authentic godly relationship uh, in, in front of them. But you think, man, where'd it go wrong? I've trained my child up in the way that he should go, but yet he's, he's departing from it. Why? What's going on? You know, we don't always understand the other mitigating circumstances. We don't always understand the other factors that are playing in their, in their life. But if we have modeled that and if we have trained, if we have trained them up in the right way, man, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7, that the blessed man walks in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. I want you to remember this, guys. Proverbs 17, 6. Great one for moms, dads. Think about this, dads. Proverbs 17, 6, the second part of that, says the glory of children is their father. Wow. The glory of children is their their father wow how are we making a difference in our descendants the last one the difference maker and his blessings first verse three wealth and riches will be in his house 
before you think for a moment that I've been been taken off the stage and replaced with Joel Osteen, let me just remind you, this is not a get-rich scheme. It's not a, if I do this and do this and do this and do this, then obviously I'm going to get rich and wealthy. I want you to notice the second part of verse 3. And his righteousness endures forever. Wealth and riches will be in his house. Why will they be in his house? Because God will, will, will uh, show favor on him and provide abundance and, and make things happen uh, for him. Yes, it's possible. If this is a man who truly loves God, if this is a man who truly has this authentic relationship, who takes God at his word, who believes he is who he is and loves doing what he wants him to do, yeah, there's not a doubt in my mind that God has every right to shower that person with blessings. Monetary blessings, if he wants. Reminding you that that money is not necessarily a blessing to everybody. But notice the second part of verse 3. And his righteousness endures forever. We have two very different things going on that are both laid at the feet of this man. One is, he is blessed with wealth and riches in his house. Yes, it could be God's favor to him, or it could be the result of handling and and making godly decisions with his money and with his possessions, as we'll see later in the psalm. But it's not just the temporal blessings that he has. His house is marked by eternal blessings. What does it say? His righteousness endures or stands forever. This man will will leave a legacy for forever. And you know what? This guy's story is told in Psalm 112. God has told us that his word abides for a little while. No. His word abides forever. The grass will fade. The flower will wither. But the word of God will abide forever. Both types of blessings, the temporal and the eternal, are in this man's house. Notice the other kind of blessing. Verse 4. And to the upright, there arises light in the darkness. I love this. This could be one of my favorite verses, favorite lines in the whole psalm. And to the upright, this man is going to have a light rise up for him in the darkness. It should be noted. We'll get more to this next week, but let me speak to this right now. This man still encounters darkness in his life. His life is not void of challenges. His life is not void of the wicked. His life is not void of the problems and trials and darknesses that can come in life. But in the midst of the darkness, there shines a light. What does light mean? In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 10, we're described as groping all day for the wall like a blind man. It represents confusion. In fact, a lack of light represents loss of direction. You remember Psalm 119, that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 130 also says, unto the upright, not just unto the upright, but the entrance of your word gives light. 
this man in the middle of darkness and what could be confusing and what could be a problem and what could be a moment where he could be easily confused and caught off guard. This man is able, I believe, to go to his relationship with God, to go on on the word of God and to be able to see this light rise up, which represents a lack of confusion, constant direction. Light also represents glory in the Bible. Light also represents God in our relationship with him. If you think of hell is described as a place of outer darkness. It represents our closeness and intimacy in the relationship with God. So this guy in the middle of dark times, in the middle of dark seasons, in the middle of dark moments, he has light rise up. The, the direction on his path, the, the guidance for he and his family, the glory of God, the relationship and communion with God. This man is literally walking in the light while others are groping at darkness. This man. makes a difference to his children. Guys, let me tell you something. That's what your family wants. Right there. There's no doubt that every one of us is going to go through dark moments. No doubt that each one of us is going to go through storms. And we, as the fathers, are going to be the captain of that ship. So we need to ask ourselves, when those moments come, how can I turn back to my family and say, I've got this? How can we, in the midst of those storms, be able to turn back to them and say, trust me, and put them at ease and comfort them as we stand at the, the steering wheel of that ship? I believe we do it through the time-tested, rock-solid, always true Word of God. We can't guide our families. We can't guide our lives without first knowing what the Word says. And guys, I think you're probably already going to be able to realize what the key is to being a difference maker. The key to being a difference maker is all about verse 1. What difference has God made in your life? I've done a lot of funerals. Not as many as some, but I've done a lot. I've done some funerals for some godly men and women. And I've done some funerals for those who were not godly men and women. And let me tell you something, guys. I'm convinced you can always find somebody to say something good about you when you're dead. You can just mark that down. I don't care how bad you are. You can always find someone to say something good about you after you're gone. But those people aren't difference makers. Those people aren't the ones that you have to search out to find someone to say something good. They're people who come forward. They're people who linger longer at the casket. They're people who are truly broken because that person impacted them greatly. I'm not talking about how to win friends and influence people. I'm asking you the very most important question this morning is what has God done in my life? If I just base it off of those two revelations of an authentic relationship, 
if I bless it off of that, I take God at his word. And I love, I enjoy walking in obedience to him. If we just use that criteria this morning, let me ask you, how authentic is your relationship? How real is it? Because I don't believe that we're ever going to be a difference maker to the caliber we can without getting that question right first. Maybe this morning, and maybe this morning you're taking a hard look at yourself. I know I did in preparation for this. God, do I preach just because that's what I get paid to do? Do I share with other people just because that's what I'm supposed to do or do I do it out of love and a reverence for you?